Good morning. It's good to see everybody here with us this morning, especially our visitors, as Brother Lester had mentioned. We really appreciate your presence. And I know back around my family, there's a kind of a group of visitors that are here. We have a lot of my family that even came in from out of town over the weekend to come in for some birthday parties that didn't know I was preaching until yesterday. And uh, so it's great to have them here. Uh, I'm really encouraged by their presence and by everybody that's here as well. If you would, for just a minute, consider with me what the world would be like without music. If music did not exist in this world, what would the world be like? When you're blowing out the candles on your birthday cake, there's nobody singing happy birthday. When you're in your car on your way to work or on your way to school, there's nothing playing on the radio. When we come together as a local congregation like this, we don't sing songs like we just did. What if music did not exist in this world? God loves singing. God commands it of us in our local worship. He also talks about in Revelation that the angels are gathered around his throne singing praises to him. I think a lot of times we take for granted that God has set in place in this world a system by which sounds and noises that we make can gel and harmonize with other sounds to create this melody, this, this music, this harmony that's very pleasing to us. Because of our local proximity to Nashville, I'd say most of you are probably like me, I grew up listening to country music. I've loved country music my entire life. I can imagine most of you probably did too, or at least it's influenced your life in some way or another. Wikipedia.org, that's an online encyclopedia, it said that in 2009, country music became the most listened to genre of music during rush hour. It's beginning to gain in popularity. It's, it's beginning to reach people in the world that have never really listened to it before. And I think most people recognize that country music claims to have its roots in Scripture. It claims to be, have influences in it from gospel music, from the hymns that you sing at church. And I think as you listen to music on the radio, you can hear that at times. A lot of the artists today, they will claim Christianity for themselves. They will claim a strong belief in God, a strong belief in the Word of God, and even claim that they believe that Jesus did die on the cross for their sins, for their eternal soul, and they believe he is the Son of God. That's a wonderful thing. And so it's not surprising that a lot of times these artists, they will take the beliefs that they have, and they will infuse that into the songs that they sing, even if it's secular songs, songs that aren't intended to really be about a church topic, but you will hear bits and pieces of their beliefs coming out in their songs. On the surface, that's a wonderful thing that we can hear that. But at times we have to be careful. It can be dangerous at times. What can happen a lot of times, and I know I'm guilty of this a lot, is you hear a song and you like it because the melody is soothing. It, it brings an emotion to you that you like to have and so you love the song and you sing it and you're not really paying attention to what you're singing. You're not really paying attention to the, song, to the words that are in that song. And so just so everybody knows, this is not a lesson against country music. Like I said, I grew up loving country music. I still listen to it all the time. But what I want us to do this morning is I want to take one of these songs that has done such a thing where the artist has kind of put some beliefs of his into the song and I want us to look at the words of that song. Let's compare it back to the Bible and see, is it really what the Bible says? Does the word of God agree with the words that are in the song, a song that we may sing all the time and never really know what we're saying? 
Back in 1980, a song was released that went number one on the country charts. It stayed there for two weeks. And so this is not a song that's just, eh, you kind of hear it at the end of a CD that you bought, or it's, it's uh, at the end of a record and nobody's really heard of it. This was a popular song. The name of the song is called I Believe in You. What the artist did in this song is, in the verses, he was talking about things that he didn't really believe in. One example that he gave is he didn't believe in the certainty of growing old. That's a very valid point. We have no certainty in growing old. And then in the chorus, he would talk about things he did believe in. He believes in love. He believes in children. He believes in his mother and father and ends the chorus with saying, I believe in you. The second verse to that song, the entire verse has taken this artist's scriptural beliefs and has basically talked about the things he doesn't and does believe about God's word. And so I want us to look at that for a minute. Let me read to you the second verse of that song. It says, Well, I don't believe that heaven waits for only those who congregate. I like to think of God as love. He's down below. He's up above. He's watching people everywhere. He knows who does and doesn't care. And I'm an ordinary man. Sometimes I wonder who I am. Let's go through those for just a minute. One of the statements that he makes in that, he says, I like to think of God as love. Okay? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, this says, Anyone who does not know love does not know God, for God is love. So when he said he likes to think of God as love, that's perfectly in line with what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that God is love. That's a valid point. He then says he's down below, he's up above, he's watching people everywhere. Okay? Jeremiah chapter 23, starting in verse 23, it says, Am I a God that's near at hand and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I should not see him? Do I not feel heaven and earth, says the Lord. So when the artist says, he's down below, he's up above, God says, am I not a God that's near and afar off? God is everywhere. He said he's watching people everywhere. God says, can you hide yourself somewhere that I can't see you? God sees everything that we do. So that line of that song, that's perfectly in line with what the scripture says. It then says he knows who does and doesn't care. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. God knows our hearts. He knows what we're truly feeling inside, what we want and what we don't want. And so when the song says he knows who does and doesn't care, that's perfectly accurate according to the Bible. But if you'll notice, I skipped a line. That's the line I want us to talk about this morning. The first line of that verse says, I don't believe that heaven waits for only those who congregate. What does that mean? When he says, I don't believe that heaven waits for only those who congregate, what's he saying? Very simply put, he's saying, I don't believe you have to go to church in order to go to heaven. That's a very bold statement. I don't believe you have to go to church in order to go to heaven. So the question I want to ask is, do people believe this? Is that just a statement that one person has made that's not really the belief of the public in general? Initially, maybe we want to say, no, that's crazy. Yeah, I think you have to go to church. In 2005, ABC conducted a poll that basically indicated that 76% of Americans believe they are going to heaven. 76% of Americans believe they're going to heaven. Throughout the years, the Gallup poll has continuously done polls about church attendance and it says that only about 40% of Americans attend some form of a worship service 
at least once a week of some kind. It doesn't say what kind of worship service, but only about 40% go at least once a week. Critics even question that number. They believe it's inflated because when people are polled about that, they will lie about it because they feel guilty about not going. So independent polls that have been done says that number is probably closer to 20%. So we have one poll that says 76% of Americans believe they're going to heaven, and other polls that show only maybe 20 to 40% actually attend a service once a week. And so we may on the surface say, no, we don't believe that. We, we believe you have to go to church. But are people saying something completely different by the lives that they're living? We know in the Bible there are certain things that God tells us on the first day of the week that we are to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he talks about that we're to lay by in stores we've been prospered, that we are to give money to our local congregation so that when there is a need, that, that we don't have to try to basically scramble and gather the money, that it's there and ready for us. It talks about in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 that on the first day of the week they gathered together to break bread. It talks about them taking, partaking of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. We know there's things that the Bible tells us we are to do on the first day of the week. Colossians 3.16 says that we're to admonish one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, the things we've done this morning already. We know we're supposed to do that. So if we don't come together as a church, if we don't attend the assemblies, how are we doing this stuff? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. You mind, let's turn there. I want to spend a majority of our time this morning looking through this. Hebrews chapter 10. I want to reread a part that Trail read to us this morning. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10, let's start in verse 22. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And I know a lot of people may be thinking right now, Jonathan, I've heard this before. Anytime I've ever heard a sermon that talks about going to church and attendance, this is always the verse that we go to, and this is what we spend our time on. There's a reason for that. It says very plainly in verse 25, we are not to forsake the assembly of the church. This is not a modern-day problem. As you can see, when this was written, the, the writer said, as is the manner of some. They were dealing, this, dealing with this back in biblical times that people just were not going. So what's the big deal? I'm here when I can be here. I'm here as much as I can on Sunday mornings. There are times I can't make it. What's the big deal? Let's keep reading. A lot of people's Bibles, I know mine does this. There's a break between verses 25 and 26. There's a heading put in there. Mine says the just live by faith. One thing we need to remember when we read our Bibles is these headings, these breaks in the verses were not put there by the person who wrote this. Those were put there by men, the publishing companies, whoever made and put together these Bibles so that there can be a flow when we're trying to study it. It does help us at times when we're studying, and it tries to break up when it looks like the writer has made kind of a, a change or a twist in the topic or the direction they're going. The chapter numbers, the verse numbers, the headings, none of that was there when it was originally written. Let's read verse 25 again and read it straight on into verse 26, the way that the original author wrote this. It says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully if we, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So what willful sins is it talking about that there no longer is a sacrifice for? Well, if you read it in the context, the stuff that we read just before that, that's talking about stuff that we're commanded to do. It says up in verse 22 that we're to draw near with a true heart. Our hearts are to be true when we're doing stuff. It's not to be done in pretending. This is not to be fake. We are to be true about this, that we are to hold up our confession of faith. The things that we have confessed to do, it says that, that he who promised is faithful. God's going to uphold his end of the bargain. We have to uphold our end of the bargain. If we don't do that, we're sinning willfully. It talks about in verse 24 that we're to stir up love and good works among each other. And then it says in verse 25, we are not to forsake the assembly. Those are things that if we neglect to do any of those commands listed there, that is a willful sin. I want us to look a little deeper into this, though, this morning. I want us to look at what happens if we do that. Okay, we know that may be a willful sin. What's the punishment? Look with me at verse 26 again, but this time let's read down through verse 31. It says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If you listen to the words of that, that should almost give you chills up your spine. That is some scary things it's talking about. Let's go back and let's go through these verses one, one at a time. Let's look at what this is really saying. We saw in verse 26 that it said a willful sin, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. But in verse 27, it starts with the word but. And so it's drawing a direct context, a contrast to the line right before it. So verse 26, it says, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. There may not remain a sacrifice for sins, but what does remain is there's an expectation that there is going to be a harsh judgment. The punishment for people who reject God's word and outright do not follow the laws of God, there is harsh wrath in store for them. That by itself sounds bad enough. But let's keep reading. Verse 28 says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. What this is referring to back in Numbers chapter 15, it talks about under the old law, if somebody was just absolutely defiant to God's law, that they willfully sinned, that they were not going to follow the law, they were put to death immediately. That's a harsh punishment when you think about it. They were immediately put to death. Somebody who is just defiant says they are not going to follow the law. Let's read what verse 29 says. It says, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? There's one very distinct difference between the old law and the new law we're under today. The old law dealt around blood sacrifices of animals. 
the new law we are under today, it was put into place by Jesus going to that cross for us, by his innocent blood being spilt to save our eternal souls. And so it told us in verse 28 that under the old law, if somebody was absolutely defiant to God's law and they were not going to follow it, they were put to death. Then it says under the new law, how much worse do you think it's going to be for somebody who is in essence said by being defiant to God's law, by willfully sinning and saying, I'm not going to do this, they're trampling the Son of God under their foot. They're saying that Jesus going to that cross, dying on my behalf, spilling his blood for me means nothing. That it is no better than any other common thing I may see on the news. To me, it was just a common occurrence. That I am not going to hold that in as high esteem as I can possibly hold it. Instead, it's just like any other ordinary thing that happens. I don't think about it. That's the difference between the old and the new law. We have that blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. And so if today, if we are defiant to God's law, God is basically saying, I'm going to take that as you saying, you don't care what Jesus did for you. You don't care about the blood that Jesus spilled on that cross for you. You're saying it's just a normal thing and that you are trampling him under your foot. Read on with me. Verse 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Again, like I said, that should put chills up your spine to read that, knowing if we are openly and willingly not going to follow God's law. So the thing I want us to look at this morning, the line in that song, it said, I don't believe that heaven waits for only those who congregate. You don't have to go to church in order to go to heaven. Verse 25 plainly said, you are not to forsake the assembling of the saints. You are not to forsake the assembly as is the manner of some. And then it continues on to say, what's going to happen to you if you don't obey these laws? All right? And a lot of people may be thinking, Jonathan, we're all here this morning. We aren't the people who need to be hearing this. It's the people who didn't come this morning. We're obviously all here on Sunday morning. That's true. Are you going to be here tonight? Are you going to be here Wednesday night? We just had a gospel meeting. Were you here? Did you make an effort to be here? Vacation Bible schools that may come up. Are you going to plan to be here? Well, hold on a second, Jonathan. I mean, I, God says he's given us commands of things that we're to do on the first day of the week. He didn't say you have to come on the fourth day of the week to do stuff. I'm doing exactly what the Bible has told me to do. I've got my box checked. I'm covered. You know, the Lord has put into place in the local congregation a structure by which he has men that are making decisions for the local congregation to protect our souls. The elders, the shepherds of this congregation are basically trying to protect our spiritual lives by decisions they make, the lives of the sheep of this flock, of the individual Christians. If you think of what a shepherd out in the field, his main purpose is. His main purpose is to protect the lives of those sheep. He is to, to keep evil things out of the flock. He is to protect them, keep things away from them, and make sure they live. That is the shepherd's job. A shepherd's job in the local congregation is the same thing. The elders today, their job is to make sure our spiritual lives are protected, that we stay alive spiritually, and that we don't die a spiritual death. They are to keep evil things out of this congregation, keep things out that are not supposed to be in here that could infiltrate us, 
and they're watching out for our spiritual souls. When an elder makes a decision about something that needs to be done, what right do we have as Christians not to follow that as long as it is a scriptural decision? An individual sheep out in the field in a flock, if it does not follow the instructions given to it by the shepherd, if it decides it doesn't want to stay with the rest of the flock, it wants to go over and do its own thing, there's a good chance that sheep may die, that it's not going to be protected. So we as individual Christians, as long as the decisions that our shepherds, our elders are making are scriptural decisions, what right do we have not to follow that decision? Because they've been entrusted by God to watch for our spiritual souls. I'm sure if you ask any one of our elders, they would be happy to explain to you reasons why they want us here other than 10.30 in the morning on Sundays. There's reasons we come on Sunday night. There's reasons we come on Sunday morning to Bible class. There's reasons we come on Wednesday nights. There's reasons that they decide that we need to have gospel meetings. We don't do it just because. There's reasons behind it. And when they've made a decision for us to be here, that we are at these assemblies, what right do we have not to be here? I know a lot of people might say, well, Jonathan, I'm sick sometimes. I physically can't get out of my house right now. I know there's some of our, our membership here that's sick today. They can't be here. What if I have to work? What if I wanted to be here on Wednesday night and my boss told me I couldn't leave because there was something that had to be done? I couldn't go or he'd have fired me. Are there times that I physically can't be here? There's stuff that is beyond my control that is preventing me from being at these assemblies. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about this. For the simple fact, a lot of times opinions can get into this. But one thing I do want to point out, turn with me to Numbers chapter 9. Turn over with me to Numbers chapter 9. And I understand this is an example that's in the Old Testament. It's under the old law. We are not bound by the old law today. But what I want us to look at is something that I think will show us a little bit about the nature of who God really is and, and the way God looks at things. Start reading with me in verse 1. Numbers chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all the rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. So it said they are in the first month while he's talking, and it says during this month you're to do the Passover on the fourteenth day. So they had a very specific time they were to keep the Passover. Jump down with me to verse 6. Verse 6, it says, Now there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse so that they could not keep the Passover on that day, and they came before Moses and Aaron that day. And those men said to him, We became defiled by a human corpse. Why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the children of Israel? So basically one of the things in the old law was if you were around a, a corpse, a dead body, that you were now considered unclean for a specific amount of time. And because of that, in order to do the Passover, you had to be clean. Well, what happened if you just happened to be around a corpse on the 13th day of the first month? That means you are now ceremonially unclean. You cannot carry out the law that God has given you to do. There is something that has happened that is beyond your control 
that you can't do what God has told you to do. Let's see what's God, what God's reaction to that was. <clears throat> Read in verse 8. It says, And Moses said to them, Stand still that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover. On the fourteenth day of the second month, at twilight, they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break one of its bones. According to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. It seems to me in this situation, God understood. If a situation occurred that was beyond that person's control, well, you may say, well, maybe they should have never been around a dead body. They never should have been around a corpse. What if it was a close family member? I mean, there's times you can't help that. It's going to happen. It may have truly been beyond their control. God said, okay, the time I had set aside was the 14th day of the first month. I'm going to allow you to celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of the second month. He allowed that to happen because he knew for certain people there was something happened beyond their control. But notice at the end of verse 12 it says, they will keep it. He didn't give them a pass that said, I'm not going to require this of you. He just says, I understand. Look with me in verse 13, though. That's the comment I want us to look at. It says, but the man who is clean and is not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from among his people because he did not bring the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sins. Says, all right, for all these people who have a, a situation that was beyond their control, they can't do what I said, I'm going to allow for that. I'm going to put a process in place that will still allow them to do what I said. But for everybody else who didn't have something like that happen and you don't do what I said for you to do, I'm holding you accountable for that. You don't get a second option for a time that you can hold the Passover. So like I said, I understand this is an Old Testament example. And so people may say, well, I had to work. I was sick. I was on vacation. Does God understand those things? What I want us to look at are, is it truly a situation that is beyond my control? Was I wanting to be here? Did I try to make preparations so that I could be at every service available at our local congregation? As we just said, God knows our hearts. He is going to bring to light the inner counsels of our hearts. He knows what we're feeling and what we're thinking. Did I really try to be here? Or when something happened during the week, it's like, whew, you breathe a sigh of relief. I just found a justified reason to not have to go to church tonight. I now can justify to myself not being there and not feel guilty about it. Because in my mind, there was something beyond my control. Are we relieved when something like that happens and we don't have to be here? Or... Are we trampling the Son of God underfoot? Are we basically saying to God that your Son dying on that cross for us, for Him spilling our blood, or spilling His blood on our behalf, that means nothing to me. That I would rather stay home, do something else, than go and worship you. I find it hard to believe sometimes that mowing our yard takes precedence over the church. That if you had a late night the night before and you need to catch up on your sleep, you sleep through Bible class. 
is that telling God that your son dying for me means nothing to me? That I am not going to hold that as the most important thing in my life as I should as a Christian. In Hebrews 10, it tells us what punishment is in place for us, or is in store for us if we do that. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So when we look back at the verse of that song that says, I don't believe that heaven waits for only those who congregate, is that supported by Scripture? Everything else that he said in the verse of that song seems to be spot on. But when it comes to that line, that line of that song is dead wrong, according to the Bible. According to the Scriptures, you are not to forsake the assembly of the church. You are to be here, not just Sunday mornings. The verse didn't say, do not forsake the Sunday morning assembly. It said, do not forsake the assembly. That includes every time that the elders have deemed it necessary in order to protect our spiritual souls to have an assembly here at this building. <clears throat> As we start to close, there's another song that I think of. As of last week, this song was number three on the Billboard country charts. And so again, this is a song people have heard. A lot of people sing along with this on the radio, possibly not really realizing what they're saying. The name of this song is called No Hurry. In it, the artist is talking about there's a lot of things going on in life that I need to be concerned with right now, but for right now, I'm just going to slow down take life easy a little bit. I'm not going to worry about all the hustle and bustle around me that I'm in no hurry today. There's a valid point to that. Sometimes we need to slow down in life, enjoy the world around us. But at the end of that song, the artist makes a statement, and I quote to you, it says, gonna get right with the Lord. He says, I'm gonna get my life right with the Lord. He's talking about that he's not a perfect man that he knows he's not perfect, he's got things in his life he needs to change, and he's going to get that right with God. But he ends that verse by saying, but I ain't in no hurry today. Are we in a hurry today to get our life right with God? We better be. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it says, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. A thief does not call you ahead of time and tell you when he's coming. If you're not prepared, it will catch you off guard. And so when that song says, I've got to get my, li my life right with God, but I'm not in a hurry to do it today, there's fiery wrath in store for a person who's not prepared. The Bible plainly tells us that. We will have no excuses. And we can't say, well, I didn't know what I needed to do. The Bible is very clear about what needs to be done. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says that you need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That in Luke 13, 13, you are to repent of the wrongs in your life. You are to turn away from the things that you've been doing that's wrong and get your life back on the track that it should be. It then says that you are to confess the name of Jesus before men. You are to confess that he is the Son of God, Romans 10, 10. Then Galatians 3, 27, you are to be baptized come into contact with that blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. At that point then when we become a Christian Revelations chapter 2 verse 10 says you're to keep living that faithful life. You can't at that point fall away. You are to continue with the life that you're supposed to be living. The Bible has plainly told us what needs to be done. If we're not doing that we have no excuse. If we're not in a hurry to get our life right with God, there is no excuse. I know we've all heard the old cliche, this may be the last chance you ever get. 
that the world may end before we even leave this building today. You know, there's a reason a lot of preachers say that a lot. It's because it's very true. We may have thousands of more opportunities to become a child of God. We may live another 50, 60 years. We don't know. But it says the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. It very well may come today. We have no idea. You may have thousands more opportunities, or this may be the last chance you have to become a child of God's. So when that song says, I've got to get my life right with God, but I'm not in a hurry today, that's not what the Bible tells us. It tells us you better be in a hurry. It's going to come when you're not expecting it. So if you're not a child of God, if you know you've never put on Christ in baptism, you've never come in contact with that blood of Christ, you better be in a hurry. If you are a Christian and you've never done the things or you're not doing the things that God's commanding of you, if there's things that God tells you in the Bible you should be doing and you are purposely not doing them, knowingly not doing them, you are willfully sinning, you are being defiant against God's word, which may be attendance. The Bible tells us what's in store for us. There is an expectation of wrath that will come. There is a judgment that will come. So if you need to become a child of God, if there's something in your life that you need to do to get your life right with God, we ask that you let us pray for you. You let us be the Christian shoulders that you need to lean on. Let us help hold you up. So if you would, please come while we stand and as we sing.